So I'm just back, well, about a week back from a month in Sri Lanka. I think some of you knew that if you were here beforehand, because I had announced it, but maybe you forgot. <laughs> and it was, um, it was definitely a time to just flow with how things could unfold. Partly that's cultural. Um, Sri Lanka is not burdened with the Western uh, attitudes that everything has to be planned and <laughs> organized. Um, not a lot of advanced planning there sometimes. And also it's just the way my own experience worked out there. Um, as often happens on travel, I think it's a good idea to have a plan of some kind, um, but you have to hold it lightly because other things can intervene. So it was like that for me. I had some idea of what I was doing, but then things changed uh, partway in, which was fine. Then other things could happen. There's a saying, um, if you can't meditate, travel, which I, I appreciate because I think the, the point of that saying is that we need to get out of our usual way of being, you know, our habits, our patterns, our familiar things, not because there's anything wrong with them, uh, that we shouldn't have those things, but that sometimes we can, it's like the water to the fish. You know, we have our way of being, our way of making our coffee in the morning, our little pattern of our week. And um, we get a little bit blinded or complacent somehow with that. And it can be really enlivening, actually, to go to a situation where that's not what's going on. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, oh, they do things differently here, or they do things this way here. And oh, that'll work too, or whoa, that doesn't work for me, or whatever, just being able to flow along with it. And when you travel, that becomes very clear, is that you're carrying with you a whole set of cultural assumptions and ideas about how things go, and that's just not necessarily the way it has to be in other parts of the world. And interestingly, meditation is the same thing, although we may not think of it that way, but you know, maybe even potentially, certainly, uh, at a deeper level. So when we meditate, we encounter different ways of perceiving in our mind. You know, we realize, oh, my body doesn't have to feel like it looks in the mirror. You know, the internal sensation of the body that we tap into through meditation is so much more vibrant and rich, and it doesn't have ten fingers necessarily if you're not feeling that in detail. You know, there's just all these different ways, and you realize, oh, even this seemingly simple thing is very different than I thought, and certainly the way thoughts and emotions and the mind unfold, as we see in meditation, can be very different from our understanding of how we think the world and ourself uh, work. So 
So maybe the best is to meditate and travel. I don't know. <laughs> so I, um, I had the opportunity to do some meditation in Sri Lanka. That was good. I would say the highlight for me was um, meeting a monk named Venerable Katakurunde Nyanananda. And he is, I don't know exactly how old he is, but roughly 90 or a bit more. And so he's, um, you know, quite venerated, quite realized, having been a monk for a very long time. And he's known, he even said this to me while I was with him, he said, you know I'm a heretic. And what that refers to is that he criticizes the commentaries. So, you know, there's the Pali canon of the original text, and then there's some commentaries uh, that go with that, that explain a little bit more and give some expositions of the teachings. And uh, he is not a fan of the commentaries, and he feels like they were sometimes written by monks that were more study monks and weren't actually practicing. And so he feels that they've missed some of the essence. Um, and he himself is quite a scholar, but also a very deep practitioner. He has both of those, and he feels that the practice is the key. And so he writes, he writes things that are very critical of the commentaries or that explain why they've missed a certain point. And we might say, well, what's the big deal? That's the point of scholarship. But you have to remember, as an ordained monk in that culture, he's supposed to mm, be more supportive <laughs> of those of the commentaries. For some reason, Sri Lankan Buddhism um, takes the suttas and the commentaries as the uh, um, key texts, I guess. And so he doesn't quite go with that. So I appreciate this, actually. That's one of the things I like about him, is that he, uh, I've been getting into his teachings over the last six months or so, and he really wants the suttas to speak for themselves, and his writings are very clear, and they're always going back and quoting directly the suttas themselves, often in Pali. So I'm learning some. My Pali is deepening by reading his stuff, although he does write in English. And he's done very detailed work uh, translating and doing expedition, expositions of the suttas. So I appreciate that. So what I wanted to talk about tonight um, was a book, sort of an exposition that he wrote called, the book is called the, it's called Ideal Solitude. I meant to bring it, but I didn't. Uh, it's called Ideal Solitude, and the sutta that he's talking about, the title of it, he translates as The Ideal Lover of Solitude, which I like. That's not actually the translation that's given in the printed text that's in the library that we have here. If you're interested, it's Majjhima Nikaya 131, and 2 and 3 and 4. The verse that appears in that sutta is repeated in four texts because it's so important, I think. And so the, um, the title that he translates as the ideal lover of solitude, which is also a line in the verse, it's often given a different translation, which has a very different meaning. So other translators, like if you look in the text in the library, this sutta is called A Single Excellent Night. 
And if you look at um, other translations, there's also one floating around that's called One Fortunate Attachment. That's pretty different than the ideal lover of solitude. Those three are all, all sound different to me. And interestingly, the Pali words are a little bit unclear. It could be any of those. So you start to maybe get a flavor from this of some of the issues with translation. It's like you have to figure out what is this particular word referring to and how does it fit into the overall context of the teachings. And it's not like you can go ask somebody. Nobody speaks Pali anymore. And you don't have a lot of material to compare to because the only thing we have, most of what we have in Pali is the Pali canon. (laughs) And so um, there is some art. Okay, so I've kind of built up the suspense here. Here's the verse that is in those four different suttas, and I'm giving you Jnanananda's translation, which is a little different than the one you'll see in the book. Let one not trace back the past or yearn for the future yet to come. That which is past is left behind. Unattained is the yet to come. But that which is present he discerns with insight as and when it comes, the immovable, the non-irritable. In that state should the wise one grow. Today itself should one bestir. Tomorrow death may come, who knows? For no bargain can we strike with death who has his mighty hosts. But one who dwells thus ardently by day, by night, untiringly, him, the tranquil sage, has called the ideal lover of solitude. So that's the kind of the verse part at the beginning, and then the sutta goes on to give, um, to go into what it means to be entangled in the past, and what it means to be entangled in the future, and even what it means to grasp onto the present. And I won't read all of that, but basically you can imagine that um, getting entangled in the past and the future and even in the present is related to grasping, is to to delight, to attachment, uh, and basically to identifying any of those as me, my story, my life. Of course, it's not somebody else's life, but the the point is that there's a way in which we can grab onto the past. And I know this happens all the time, right? During the sitting, you start thinking about something that happened yesterday or whatever that happened to me during this last sitting that we had. So this is normal for the mind, but there's a way in which we can go into the past and start thinking about it and turning it over in our mind and rolling around in it, basically, and all this stuff about, oh, what was that that happened yesterday? What did she mean by that? And what am I going to say next time? And maybe what I should have said was such and such, and, you know, whatever. The, the mind has its machinations about the past. Um, and all of that, all of that interest and charge that we place on it, on something that is gone. The past is left behind, according to this verse. Um, all of that it amounts to suffering. It certainly amounts to missing the present moment while you're thinking about all of that. And we know this, you know, we know this quality of the mind that does this. 
and similarly for the future. You know, there's a way in which uh, we can look toward the future, toward what's going to happen tomorrow, or what we're planning for our next career move, or that thing we want to buy, whatever it is, and we start rolling it around in our mind and turning it into, what about this, and how could I strategize it to really be the best, and how can I make it work out but avoid that thing I don't want to happen. And again, we started to identify and make it into something complicated, which is actually suffering. Unattained is the yet to come. The future is unwritten, and all of our machinations about it are not always helpful. So that too is is suffering. And similarly, there's even a way that we can grasp onto the present. It's more subtle. Um, But if there's craving or delight, not a healthy delight, you know, kind of a graspy delight in the present moment, that too can bring us suffering. If we, if we say we get a little bit of peace and concentration in our meditation and we start saying, oh, this is so great. Wow, look at my mind. I haven't seen it this calm all day. This is great. I'm going to come every Thursday. This is a really important sit for me. Or I'm going to tell my roommate about this. They really need to get into this. Boy, my roommate could sure use some of this calm. Well, then you're kind of missing it, right? It, you know, the calm was there, but all that thinking starts to obscure it. So there are ways in which we can get wrapped up, even in the present moment. Um, it's just the way the mind works. You know, if you've noticed this in your mind, don't worry. Uh, the Buddha noticed it too, and that's why he had this, the teachings that he gave us. So, the nice thing about this teaching, actually, about not getting entangled in the past and the future and the present, is that he, he's making it clear that the fact that we do think about the past and the future and the present isn't in and of itself a problem. Like, sometimes you'll hear, even in, like, especially in modern mindfulness teachings, you'll hear, Forget about the past, forget about the future, just be in the present moment, (laughs) you know? I probably even taught that sometimes. Um, But it's actually not that memory is a problem. You know, sometimes the very thought, the fact that we're remembering the past is, we're told is a terrible thing and we shouldn't be doing that. But it's not true. We're not asked to forget everything that we know and just be in the present moment. Um, it's only when we have this delight and this rolling around and this identification with the memories that there's a real problem. In fact, the word sati, which is the word from usually translated as mindfulness, is related to memory. In Pali, the word sati means mindfulness and it also means memory. And it's not exactly clear where the boundary between those is. Um, for example, this is re- this is from the Pali Canon, from the suttas. Herein, a noble disciple is mindful and is endowed with the highest prudence in mindfulness. He is one who remembers and recollects even what was done or said long ago. This, monks, is called the faculty of mindfulness. That's pretty interesting, right? It says that mindfulness is memory. There are other definitions of mindfulness given. I don't think this is the only one. But 
the Buddha doesn't ignore that mindfulness and sati means mindfulness and it also means memory. And so it's considered actually intelligent in practice that you're able to remember and recollect what was done and said long ago. Um, Not that we need to have a super photographic memory and all of that, but you know, there's something intelligent about remembering the Dharma talk last week and being able to continue to practice with those teachings or to remember as, you know, as you read something, to remember, oh, this is like that Dharma talk I heard three months ago. This is what that teacher was talking about. Now it's starting to make sense. To have some sense of continuity of the teachings that you're learning, that's considered good practice. And it's not that good practice to say, I'm just going to be in the present moment and forget everything as soon as it comes in, (laughs) you know? Not necessarily. Actually, some of the teachings even encourage developing our memory. For example, the memory of past lives. There are practices that are designed, I don't know if you believe in that or not, but there are practices that are designed to recover memory of past lives for the purpose of gaining insight. So definitely... um, And, of course, the point is non-attachment to those memories. We're not supposed to remember our past life and then say, oh, that was so great when I was a princess last lifetime. It's more like, oh, geez, you know, I had another life and another life. Oh, the burden of all of that. Let's get out of the round. But, um, yeah, so memory itself is not an issue. It's actually maybe also worth noting that although mindfulness or awareness has a very key role in the teachings in the suttas, it's wisdom that is said to be finally liberating. So mindfulness, I think, is sometimes treated as a god in our modern practice. Be mindful, you must be mindful all the time, I'm developing my mindfulness. And there's almost an undercurrent of this is it, as soon as I'm mindful, that's it. But the Buddha says, well, mindfulness, first of all, it's only one step of the Eightfold Path. Um, But as far as what's actually going to free your mind, it's wisdom. Here's a verse. Whatever streams there are in the world, mindfulness keeps them in check. This, I say, is the restraint of streams, but by wisdom are they damned. D-A-M-M-E-D. Damned. So, um, the streams referred to are, of course, the streams of, well, usually they're the streams of either greed, hatred, and delusion, or the so-called outflows, which are the uh, desire for, uh, the, the attachment to sensual desire to becoming into ignorance. So, these are streams that are not helpful, and the mind can... I like that image. We, we get that, right? The mind f- can flow down certain streams. If we have a strong stream of anger in our mind, for example, we know what it feels like when the mind kind of gets in that stream. Um, and so this is saying mindfulness is a way of keeping those things in check. So if you're mindful that you're angry, that's good. You're probably not going to stamp your foot and start yelling if you're mindful enough of the anger. It might be unpleasant. If the anger might not go away, you might just have to sit there and be mindful of it. But at least you're not caught in it at that moment. So that's what it's meant by mindfulness keeps them in check. This is the restraint of streams. But it might just come back after, I mean, it'll eventually go away. And then uh, it might come back. 
by wisdom are they damned, by wisdom are they actually stopped from flowing. And that means understanding, not just seeing the anger, but understanding it in a certain way. We can't make that happen necessarily, but uh, the practices that we're taught should bring that about. So wisdom for seeing things with wisdom, for example, means understanding that they are impermanent, that they are feeling the suffering associated with them, and understanding that they're not self, that they're not you. That is the additional piece on top of just awareness that's going to free the mind of anger or greed or envy or whatever your thing is. So going back to solitude, um, the ideal lover of solitude, why does the Buddha end with that? So he's talked about how we shouldn't cling to the past or put our hopes on the future or even get stuck on the present, but just see with wisdom each presently arising state as and when it comes. Dwelling ardently day and night doing that. So why is that related to solitude? I will bring forth another teaching. There's another sutta that's about a monk whose name is simply elder. The other monks just call him elder. And his way of being was that he did everything alone. And he would even sort of you know, praise that. He would say, I get up alone, I go out on alms round alone, I eat my food alone, I meditate alone. I'm, I love solitude. And so he says, I really am practicing seclusion. That was actually the word that he used, not solitude. So he said, I really practice seclusion. And the other monks thought, hmm. you know, they, they were a little put off maybe by him being alone all the time. And so they told the Buddha about this guy. And the Buddha said, well, bring him here, summon him. And so the monk named Elder showed up and the Buddha said, well, is it true that you do everything by yourself and this is your practice of seclusion? And he says, yes, it is. <laughs> He's very happy about that. And the Buddha doesn't, he doesn't... Um, say that's wrong, he says, oh yeah, okay, he says that's one way to practice seclusion, because the Buddha does praise seclusion, um, certainly over gregariousness and getting all caught up in what the crowd is doing. He prefers that there's some detachment, some sense of inner balance. So he says, yes, that is one way to practice seclusion, but let me, let me teach you how seclusion really comes to fruition. So he basically says, you didn't go quite far enough. And so he says, for that, um, it is when we have, the word he uses is usually translated as detachment, but let's say non-clinging, um, in all activities, like whether we're speaking or walking or sitting or being with others or being silent or being alone or reading, whatever it is we're doing, if we have... Um, non-clinging to what it is, similar to what the previous verse I read was, then we are, in a sense, secluded. We might be with other people. We might be in a conversation. Um, we might be at a party, eventually, able to do this. But we're not um, caught up in what's happening. We have total choice about how we participate and what we say and do. And it's actually, there's a lot of power in that uh, to not ever look back and regret that we got caught up in something or we got pulled into 
uh, greed or anger because that's what others were doing. So he says, this is real seclusion, is to be able to be alone in a sense, but anytime, alone, whether you're with others, alone, alone, uh, that that's what the real freedom is. And that makes sense because being liberated in the Buddhist sense, there's no restrictions on our world then, uh, except those imposed by um, ethics, of course. But, um, you know, it's not like there would be places where we couldn't go or situations where we couldn't be. Um, freedom would always allow, freedom of the mind and heart would allow some way of interacting with everything that, that is that is still free. So basically, this kind of solitude is to be apart from suffering, to be separate from suffering, which is what we want. <laughs> separate from clinging, separate from identification. Uh, and then we could be with anyone. Sometimes people take that on a little early, though. You know, they hear the teaching that says, well, you know, you don't actually need to separate yourself from anything. You can just live your regular life and still be free. It's true, and I wouldn't ever say that people have to do one thing or another, but it is recommended that we start to practice some degree of actu- of the, that earlier kind of solitude, even if it's as simple as sitting 30 minutes a day, you know, by yourself, on your cushion, um, in your house. That alone, that's actually a form of seclusion right there, just taking that 30 minutes without your phone and without talking with people. So I encourage that to have a daily practice. And then, you know, if and when the time seems right, you can do a day long here, for example, or even a residential retreat when that starts feeling like it's something you'd like to do. These periods of greater seclusion, you might actually start wanting it then. I went through a period in my practice where I couldn't get enough retreat. You know, as soon as I came off of one, I was like looking up online, when can I get on the next one? When will I have vacation? Can I do a longer one? You know, it was good. You know, I eventually did a couple of three-month retreats, which I really found deep and meaningful. Um, Yeah, so that's good to pursue. And then at some point, I I didn't feel the need to do as much long, really long retreat. more about then finding that seclusion in in other situations. So, but the Buddha has a big praise, big, big praise for solitude. The ideal lover of solitude is someone who can just be with anything that's happening without identifying with the past, the future, the present. And then eventually we're able to do that all the time. This is the um, the end of another sutta called the Mangala Sutta. It says, He whose mind does not flutter by contact with worldly contingencies, sorrowless, stainless, and secure, this is the highest blessing. To such folks, fulfilling matters such as these, they are everywhere invincible, in every way moving happily. These are the highest blessings. I know that language is a little odd. That was also um, a different translation than the standard one. But it basically says, you know, when you're free, then contact with anything doesn't upset your mind. Just like this, right? The immovable, the non-irritable, from this ideal lover of solitude, Sutta. 
And then, you know, then we go around in peace, and we, we exude peace, we are peace, because uh, we're always responding to what is actually needed. And we're never getting sucked into things or responding based on our own neuroses. We're able to really serve through wisdom and compassion, and that comes about through great strength of heart that we find in meditation. So meditation is the place to find this, but if you can't meditate, travel. So whatever works to get out of our usual mindset and really start to see how things work and be able to make better and better decisions based on deeper understanding. So I think I'll stop there and ask if there are any questions or comments for all of us ideal lovers of solitude. Yeah. I'm just a little curious um, why you picked Sri Lanka was it specifically to go study with <coughs> study with this monk. Oh, that's a good question. So. Um, I don't know. It feels like there were various conditions coming together to make it Sri Lanka. I don't think it was something, it wasn't something that I was premeditated and planned. It was actually that a couple friends of mine on retreat, at the end of the retreat, um, we were all talking and they were going to Sri Lanka in November. And I expressed interest kind of spontaneously, um, it being the end of a retreat. And my heart was really open. I was like, wow, that sounds really cool. And so they said, why don't you come with us? <laughs> and I thought, oh, you don't get an opportunity like that very often because I wouldn't want to go by myself necessarily. And so that got me over the hump. I had thought about going to Thailand or Burma earlier. Those are the other, the three main Theravadan countries are Thailand, Burma, and Sri Lanka. And there are a couple, there you can find it in other places in Southeast Asia, but those are the three that were the, kind of the official religion. And so I had thought about going to Thailand or Burma. For some reason, usually people in this area in the West, in California, are most connected to either the either Thailand or Burma. We have a number of Thai forest monasteries and a couple of Burmese monasteries, and somehow the conditions just never happened. I did some research into it a few years ago, and I don't know, and then things kind of fell apart and I didn't go. So I guess that's a longer answer than you might have wanted, but it really wasn't premeditated. And the folks I went with had some ideas of where to go, so they set up the you know the first retreat that we went on. They they arranged that monastery there, and it, but once I knew I was going, then yeah, I got very interested in meeting Yonananda because I had seen so much about his teachings. His health is not good. I mean, stay. I don't exactly stay with him. You get five minutes with him. That's it because his. Uh, his lung condition doesn't allow him to speak for much longer than that. So this was kind of my chance. I don't know how much longer he'll live, although those guys can live for a long time. You never know. Yeah. Yay! Yeah, yeah, with uh, five other friends. Um, That's good to go with people. Do you have a idea where you're going? I have no idea. I think they they want to stay in Bangkok for a couple.
couple of days, um, then go to Phuket. Those are the two main touristy locations. Um, but you'll want to get to monasteries, I'm sure. Yeah, I'd like to check out a, a couple monasteries, definitely, and uh, some some people have some recommendations um, for monasteries and other places to go to. Uh, but yeah, the med um, you can't meditate, travel. Or do both, yeah. yeah <laughs> well, you, you know that guy, G, right, who's one of the teachers here? G. Uh, G. Schultz. G. Schultz, yeah. Yeah, he um, he goes to Thailand every year and knows a lot of the good monasteries. I would talk with him. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he guest speaks here. So. Yeah, and his email is on the website, okay. and he would love to to share about his yeah. time there because that's why he goes every year. He loves it. Yeah. So I think he'd have some good recommendations for you. Even if you don't get to all of them, you should go with a list of like ten places, just because you never know yeah, which ones are going to be available. You might end up separating from some of them. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of people to coordinate. Yeah, yeah separating and yeah, checking it all out. Cool. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.